Happy Thursday, everybody, and welcome to episode 62 of the Snyder Cut. I am your jacked up host, Jeff Snyder, senior film reporter at Collider. And I am so pumped today because today is the Super Bowl for movie news. That's right. Today is Disney's big investor call. I even thought about delaying this podcast to Friday so we could cover all the gigantic news coming out of it. Unfortunately, it's been such a crazy week. You know, just the past seven days alone, there's enough to fill two podcasts worth of shows. So I can't just focus on this Disney investor call. We're going to have to get to that next week. Let's back it up and let's get to that announcement that was made literally as this show was taping last week. I have a feeling Hollywood knows I taped this show at one o'clock on Thursdays, Eastern time. And that's when all the big news is getting dropped now, Thursday afternoons. They either want to be on the Snyder Cut podcast or they want to avoid the Snyder Cut podcast. Well, eventually the Snyder Cut podcast catches up with everybody. And so right now, let's talk about WB's seismic decision to send its entire 2021 slate to HBO Max. We touched upon it a little bit last week, but there has just been so much stuff since. So I think the big question, because like this is a win for consumers, all consumers want is choice, you know? And so all these movies, they're still going to theaters. It's just that why would you go to a theater the way things are right now if you could just watch in the comfort of your own home the same day? You know, maybe there will be people, the people who have been going to the movies, who, who are, you know, the people who, who get Honest Thief to open to four million at the box office. You know, maybe there's that half a million, one million people in the country who will go see these movies in theaters. Maybe there'll even be more because they're obviously, these are much bigger movies than a Liam Neeson, uh, you know, action thriller. Um, you know, unfortunately, most people are going to watch them in the comfort of their own home. And, and I think that's okay. Like, we kind of forget, we put all this stock in a theatrical experience. And I love it. I love it as much as anybody. I love it more than 99% of people. I didn't grow up like I didn't fall when I think about like my formative movies, you know, growing up, those weren't in theaters. Those were watching VHS tapes that I rented at Blockbuster and watching them on a tiny TV in, in the living room or the study or the den, whatever it is. Like I, I don't think that a movie, you know, I'm not one of these people who who cares so much about the visuals and the sound. I care about the story. And the story is the same, whether it's on a big screen or a small screen. So I am delighted to be able to, to see these movies um, because, it, you know, it sucks. Like Promising Young Woman is coming out on Christmas Day. And we're going to talk about that later in the show. But like, I know people who are really excited to see it, but they're like, well, it's only coming out in theaters. I'm not going to a theater on, you know, on Christmas Day to see that. And so they're just going to end up waiting, to, you know, two, three months. And so that's why I think that the choice is important. Not to mention, there's really not much of a choice. Like people just aren't going to the movies. And so when you have Christopher Nolan being like, you know, HBO Max is the worst streaming service for doing this. It's like, this is a business, man. And I get that, like, it's art to you and it represents years of your life, but it's a business at the end of the day. And if there's no avenue to release the movies, you know, a, a, a proper avenue, I mean, you can put it in theaters, but again, nobody's showing up. Then yeah, why not do a day and date and let people actually see your movie? Isn't that the goal of making a movie so that people can see it? Who cares really where they see it? I mean, I know it's designed for the big screen, but you have to understand that 
more than half the people who see any pretty much any given movie are going to be catching it on TV. That even goes for a gigantic, you know, global hit like a Black Panther. Think of all the people who saw Black Panther in theaters. There's probably more people who are going to see it on Disney Plus or, you know, on FX or whatever. That, that, that's just facts, I feel like. Um, but there's so much more in play here, right? What does it mean for Warner Brothers' relationship with theaters, with actors and filmmakers, with co-financiers? I mean, Legendary owns 75% of Dune, right? They, they finance 75% of Dune, yet Warner Brothers is the one that controls the release. And so, you know, when Warner Brothers is like, well, now we're going day and date with this thing in October, Legendary is like, wait a second, how do we like recoup our money? Like, I mean, obviously HBO Max is going to buy the movie off of Warner Brothers. So Warner Brothers is just selling the movie to itself, basically. And and Legendary will probably get 75% of that or whatever. But like, what is it selling the movie to itself for? Like, what What is the deal? Because it sounds like Netflix made an offer of 225 to 250 million for Godzilla vs. Kong, another Legendary title. So, I mean, you know, as the financier, Legendary better be getting some, like a better offer from HBO Max, you know, like they have to be made whole. And, and it's crazy that they, they kind of just gave Warner Brothers the right to block a move like that. You know, um, that's, that's what happens when, you, you know, it's like the distributor has all the power, even though, you know, a lot of times it's the financier. Anyways, you know, now Legendary is talking about suing Warner Brothers potentially and if, and if you're Warner Brothers like this is one of your main financiers like how do you alienate them this is after pretty much losing all the, the Rat Pack you know Dune money or whatever it was right like that was a whole slate financing deal and they, they can't be making movies with, with Brett Ratner and James Packer's money anymore so Legendary is like even it's it's super important over there and to alienate them, to give them a 30 minute heads up, which is the same heads up that the press received, right? Because we got all that information under embargo. I just, that, that's just not, it's not how you treat people, at least in this business. And, and that's sort of the thing is that AT&T doesn't, it doesn't feel like they really know what they're doing in Hollywood, which is a town that's entirely about relationships, right? I get that in business, Whoever has the leverage, whoever has the upper hand, they're going to do what they want. But you have to keep in mind, like, you can't just sort of cast theaters aside. I know that they, they mean little to you right now because so, so few people are frequenting them. But down the line, you can't make movies of this size and then just drop them on your streaming service. Like, it doesn't... The return does not add up. The, the number of eyeballs that they will drive to a streaming service doesn't even compare with a, a potentially billion-dollar theatrical release. So you're going to need theaters eventually. Things should return to, quote-unquote, normal eventually. People keep saying, well, you can't put the toothpaste in the tube, and once you train the consumer to expect these movies day and date, that's what they're going to want going forward. I mean, I feel like the consumer is savvy, savvy enough to know that this is a... A precarious moment in in the movie industry and you know we should be thankful that that places like warner brothers are, are proving to be flexible they're showing some adaptability but i don't think that this is a permanent change I, it just i don't think movie theaters are going away maybe there will be a lot fewer movie theaters and maybe they will be playing you know may, maybe it won't be uh, these gigantic multiplexes anymore 
You know, maybe I'm sure that the windows will shrink. A lot of stuff is going to change, but to, to be talking in absolutes when nobody really knows what is going on or, or when to expect a vaccine and, and all that kind of stuff. I just, that's the thing. When you read these statements, everybody's talking in, in absolutes and there are none, not right now. So let's talk about like Chris Nolan, like this guy comes out, says HBO Max is the worst streaming service, just issues a super, super harsh statement and, and, and sort of gets at the point that everybody, you know, that's not just him, He's just the one with the clout to be able to say something. Uh, but like everybody's upset at this. Even, even the filmmakers who are sort of going along with it in public, you know, Patty Jenkins is probably one of those people, but you, you know, if you read her interviews closely, you can tell she's upset as well. Like this was not the plan. She's surprised that this was even put on the table. Again, I don't think you can blame Warner brothers or Warner media for making this decision like it's just it's you're living in denial if you think you can just hold these movies and, and then like hold them till when like studios have to make money they have to pay salaries they have to find it's just, they have to finance an entire operation i mean it's it's just it's just never good to have movies sitting on a shelf and 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 it's like someone said and then what like when there is a vaccine or enough of the population is vac- is vaccinated. What happens to all these movies just come out at the same time? Every, every, you just be cannibalizing your theatrical release. Um, but obviously it is expensive. You know, it, it adds up those, those fees when movies are sitting on the shelf, like supposedly I think MGM is going to lose 50 or $60 million from all these no time to die delays. I mean, when, when no one calls HBO max, the worst streaming service, like, what is he calling it that from the point of view of the artist because there's a lot more consumers than there are artists and when you say that to a consumer i i I completely disagree i would call hbo max probably the best streaming service not only are you getting all the quality content from hbo but now you're telling me i can watch king richard and godzilla vs kong and dune and wonder woman and all all these movies day and date and and it's not like an extra cost, like, like Mulan was on, on Disney premiere, like HBO, it it does have to do something to compete with Disney plus with Netflix and Amazon because it's launch was so botched. There just wasn't, I understand why AT&T wanted to get that streaming service out as quickly as possible and establish itself in the marketplace, but they just didn't have the content. They still don't have the content without HBO. I mean, don't tell me it's an American pickle and super intelligence and, uh, I mean, when I think of HBO Max right now, I think of the White House farm murders. And that was like all I've really watched on the service. Um, but again, when you when you add in all these Warner Brothers movies, I think it makes HBO Max easily the, the best streaming, uh, streaming service. I don't think that there's anything that Netflix or Amazon or Disney Plus can can offer to match that Warner Brothers movie lineup. So... Yeah, it is a bit of a, a sacrifice, no doubt. I mean, that, that represents billions of dollars in, in production costs and, and uh, bo- likely box office gross. But you need to make you need to make a sizable investment in HBO Max. So it's it, it sucks that some of these this handful of movies got caught in the crossfire. Like I said, timing is everything in this business. Um, the other adage, you know, besides timing is everything, and, and don't use your own money. It's nobody knows 
you know, nobody knows anything. And I think that we're seeing that right now with whether it's John Stanky and Sarnoff, uh, Jason Kalar. I mean, these people could be visionaries or they may not have a job next year. So you never know. Um, clearly, though, a lot is changing in this industry. The ground is shifting beneath our feet. Everything is just becoming streaming, streaming, streaming. And, and I get it. Like, there's what is the alternative? Theaters that have a 25% capacity? Like, there's not enough ICU beds in LA right now. It just looks like the, it sounds like it's the apocalypse in that city. There's a surge on top of a surge on top of a surge with, with the COVID and stuff. So, like, what are you supposed to do? Not have movies for a year? If you can't put them out in theaters properly and people aren't going to show up to the theaters, then you have no choice but to release something, you know, on, on a streaming service. And, and listen, they could change their minds. They could say this experiment maybe isn't working. We didn't even get the subs that we thought we were going to get from Wonder Woman 84, Right. Like, I don't understand why they necessarily had to announce this when they did. I don't know why they didn't wait until after Wonder Woman 84 and say, look, this was a huge success. Now we've decided to do the same thing with our other movies. But at the same time, as a reporter, like I appreciate them just announcing everything all at once rather than doing this piecemeal where, you know, everybody spends weeks checking on every individual title. It's just like make a uniform decision and, and, and stick with it. And I think that it shows balls um, and, you know, you do, you do have to stand up to these artists sometimes. Yeah, like the, these people have no idea what it is to suffer, by the way, like no idea. I mean, when everybody's complaining about not getting like their box office back end bonuses, like have you taken a look outside and, and seen what the average consumer, the average moviegoer is going through? I'm very lucky to have a job. Most people I know lost their jobs particularly in, in Los Angeles in the, in the movie business. So it's just like, I don't know. It, it just, it kind of blows my mind. And when, and when you think that you can get everything, you know, that, that Warner Brothers is going to offer for a monthly fee, right? Um, let's say Warner Brothers, I don't even know how many movies were in that announcement. but let's say it was 12 and they're going to put out one movie every month. You're paying 15 bucks a month for HBO Max. So that's what it, a movie ticket would cost. And then you're getting in addition to that movie, that big movie, everything that HBO puts out and everything in the archives, the library, like to, to me, these are good. This is a good offer. Um, I, I know that there's a lot more at play and I do feel bad for the artist who, who, whose work was designed to, to be seen on a big screen and now he won't be able to, but like that's not HBO Max or AT&T's fault. Don't blame them because the pandemic has made it impossible for people to go to movie theaters or your local governor has made it impossible. Like, I think Warner Brothers would love to have theaters open. Like, if theaters were open and, and people were going to them like they were in 2019 or 2018, I don't think that this would happen. It's just, you have to be flexible in, in, in the age of COVID. Um, all right, that was enough on, on, on all that stuff. Let's talk about Spider-Man now, because Spider-Man was just crazy this week. And I know I, I played a part in it. Um, so it all started with like Doc Ock coming back, right? Al Alfred Molina, that was confirmed, I guess, this week by, I think it was Hollywood Reporter, I want to say. And I love Doc Ock. Like Alfred Molina, he's the best Spider-Man villain there is. Now, you don't bring back, like this is just common sense. 
You don't bring back Doc Ock and Electro without the Spider-Men that they face off against. Like, why even do this multiverse idea, right, without Andrew Garfield and Tobey Maguire? Like, how do you... I don't understand it. So even though, you know, I don't know that that Toby's deal has necessarily closed, I do think that there was some kind of an agreement a long, long, long time ago because you wouldn't even move forward with this iteration of Spider-Man 3 if you didn't have the talent locked down, period. What I'd heard was that Sam Raimi was very influential in getting Toby to do this. And, and I don't know what the timeline of all this is. Like, it, it, it's that, that is kind of what fascinates me. Like, was, did, did Sam Raimi sign on to do Doctor Strange 2? And then, because I thought that was when they were going to be introducing all the multiverse stuff. Now it looks like that's Spider-Man 3. And I think Doctor Strange 2 was originally supposed to come out before Spider-Man 3. And now it's coming out a few months after. So, like... Was Raimi on board to do Doctor Strange 2 and then was like, hey, I'm part of the MCU now and he convinced Toby to do Spider-Man 3 or did he convince Toby to do Spider-Man 3 thereby saving the MCU or this the idea that they wanted to do for the Spider-Man 3 movie? And then Marvel was like, thank you so much, Sam. You know what? We're having creative differences with Scott on Doctor Strange 2. How would you like to come in? Like, was Doctor Strange 2 almost a reward for getting Toby to do it. Since, you know, like I said, I heard Raimi was very instrumental in, in getting Toby to agree whether there's a deal in place or, or not, you know? Uh, Andrew, I'm, I'm pretty, it was always pretty confident was coming back. You know, Emma Stone, by the time this podcast hits, there's going to be major Emma Stone news. So I, I guess I can just say that too. The, I, I got the embargo release right as I started taping. Emma Stone, yes, I, I think it's pretty clear that she is pregnant. A lot of pregnancy rumors out there. She had to drop out of the Damien Chazelle thing. You know, something like this. I, I don't think that these are substantial roles. I, I think it's going to be a quick cameo or whatever. And I think you could tape that. You could do that like a week before the movie comes out. The way uh, in one of those Marvel movies that we'd heard that Robert Downey Jr.'s part was like, he did it like a couple weeks before the release. It wasn't even in like press screenings of the movie. So Emma Stone, anyways, pregnancy, not pregnant, whatever the deal is, is signing on to star in the Showtime series, I think it's The Curse, uh, from Nathan Fielder and the Safdie brothers. So that's a huge get for Showtime. They're getting an Emma Stone show. She's working with two really cool uh, or three really cool people in the Safdies and Nathan Fielder. So like, it seems like she is going to continue working. She's not just shutting everything down for this baby. Um, and you know, like they could also shoot her while pregnant in, in Spider-Man three, maybe she's pregnant in this multiverse, in this alternate universe, maybe her in, I guess, I guess she died in the multiverse, but maybe she's alive. I don't know. I don't understand multiverses are all like gobbledygook to me. All I know is you don't even move forward with Spider-Man three without getting guys like Toby and Andrew, right? Um, yeah. So we also got dare a daredevil rumor this week. I have no idea about that. I, I don't know whether, you know, Charlie Cox, whether daredevil will be in the movie and whether it will be Charlie Cox's daredevil or not. I mean, it seems like there's already a lot 
of going on in this movie and a lot of characters when you also take uh, Doctor Strange into account. Meanwhile, we don't even really know, well, I guess, I guess Electro and Doc Ock, but like, are they the villains in this movie? Who are the villains? Who is the villain? Uh, yeah, or do, do they just sort of have like cameos? Part of me like wishes that Sony or Marvel would come out and clarify some of this stuff, but I know that's also what I was getting at in the whole piece, which is just like, if you're a fan of this stuff, why do you want to know every little thing about these movies? Why do you want to know the whole movie and who you're going to see before you even go into it? Like, I, I have to make that sacrifice as a reporter. Um, and there's plenty of movies I probably would have enjoyed more over the years if, if some of their surprises were still intact. But like, as the average audience member, why are you even consuming all this superhero news? Like, I wouldn't want to know all these details. Okay, give me. And, and that's the other thing about these cameos. Are these things that will be advertised like in the trailers? Are you going to see Electro and Doc Ock? Or are these reveals in the script? Because I, I can't pretend to know either way. Um, I loved like Daredevil was my favorite of the Marvel TV shows. I thought Charlie Cox did a great job. I know Kevin Feige has sort of been, I don't know if he's even been on the record or not, but it's sort of been said that Kevin Feige is not a fan of the Marvel TV shows, or at least there was a lot of, a lot of beef between him and Marvel TV. That may just be on the executive side. I don't know if he just genuinely didn't like the shows. Like, how do you not like Charlie Cox's take on Daredevil? Maybe he will use Charlie Cox. Maybe he won't. Maybe he'll, he'll recast the role. Maybe it won't. I, I don't know. I just, I don't know if I completely bought that. Um, then today we got word that Rachel McAdams is back for Doctor Strange 2. So like, there's just a lot of stuff going on right now on both the Doctor Strange 2 front and the Spider-Man 3 front. I feel like these movies are almost connected in a way. I mean, they are, thanks to Doctor Strange being in Spider-Man 3. But it almost feels like Doctor Strange 2 is going to be like a sequel of, of sorts, not to Doctor Strange, but to Spider-Man. Um, yeah, it, it, almost, it, just, it just feels like a two-parter that almost changes perspective after the, the first half. Um, yeah, you know, again, Kirsten Dunst, MJ, I, I've heard that she's coming back. I, you know, I don't know if her, her reps feel the same way, but that's just at this point. So many things can change. Like they just, the movie's been shooting for a few weeks, I feel like. And again, I, I don't know. What, are the, what, what does Kirsten Dunst have to do? She was supposed to come back to do um, Becoming a God in Central Florida and then Showtime acts the second series, uh, the second season of that show. So it's just like, why wouldn't you come back probably for good money that, that, they're, that they're throwing your way, right? Why wouldn't you come back and, and do a little fan service? Like, especially if, if, if Sam Raimi is sort of giving it his blessing, right? I, I just think if Sam is asking them to do it, they would do it. Uh, that that is what I've heard. But again, if you ask people, and they, that's the other thing, there are verbal commitments and agreements and stuff like that. And then there are publicists and, and corporate communications executives who can come back to you and say, well, we don't have a closed deal. Okay. You know, that, that's on you guys. Like, I'm just like, this is just what I'm hearing. So you can take it with a grain of salt, if you will. I would take all this Marvel comic book uh, news with a grain of salt, whether it's, you know, daredevil or you know whatever i just 
let's just wait to get to the big screen. Let's just wait to see it. That, that is really what I wanted to communicate with the Spider-Man piece, which I didn't slap exclusive on. I felt like I'd heard about Andrew Garfield and Tobey Maguire and Dunst. And, and I feel like I'd read all this stuff on the blogs for the last six months. It didn't feel new to me. I was just putting it out, putting it out there because I'm sick and tired of the, the constant drip, drip, drip. And how I mean, the studios, they only deal with like deadline these days. Look, look at your breaking news. I went through my emails last night. I had 201,000 unread emails. I deleted 12,000 emails last night, many of them breaking news alerts from the trades. And yeah, it just, it's clear as day. The deadline is just being fed everything these days. Variety does not have a, a, a top tier breaking news reporter anymore. Um, and, and Hollywood Reporter, I don't know if it's the ownership thing or people are just like, listen, if we're going to go to a Penske outlet, let's just go to deadline. I mean, not, not that Hollywood Reporter has stopped breaking stuff because they obviously are still breaking stuff, but it, it definitely does not. It just feels like everything's being funneled deadlines way. Um, Whew. And yeah, of course, Marvel isn't going to confirm anything. We're going to get a lot of confirmations and stuff like that. I would imagine today on the investor call, at least a lot of, I know a lot of star Wars news is going to go down. Um, I don't know if they'll announce like new Disney animated or Pixar stuff. We'll, we'll, we'll see. Uh, so yeah, Rachel McAdams back for Dr. Strange. I, I was always surprised about the reports that said that she was not going to be coming back. Like, why wouldn't she? She was the love interest in the, in the first movie. Um, and I think that there's a lot more for her to do as far as like the, the night nurse stuff goes, I guess. I'm not a comic book guy. I don't know what the hell the night nurse is. Um, but yeah, she, I mean, people really like Euro trip this summer. Like it just made like, why would you leave her out for this? Uh, Dr. Strange, by the way, not filming until May, I feel like. And, and, that the, the timeline seems to have changed on Doctor Strange like an awful lot. I feel like a lot of the story-wise, a lot of stuff must have changed maybe when Raimi replaced Erickson. Maybe Raimi was just like, all right, I'm down to do this, but like, this is the way I want to do it. Like, I, I also don't know, like, what was John Watts sort of planning for Spider-Man 3, was he? Was it always supposed to go to the, the multiverse stuff? Because, like, Tom Holland wasn't even part of the MCU when Doctor Strange 2 was announced, right? Like, Sony and Marvel had not even come to an agreement, I don't think. Again, my timeline is all fuzzy because uh, it would require a ton of research that I don't really want to put into this sort of podcast, but... I, I just think a lot has changed with regard to, to Spider-Man 3 uh, once Raimi came on board. All right, we can move it along because we've got a lot of fun stuff to talk about. Uh, my boy Kroll just broke a very fun story. Chris Evans joining the cast of Adam McKay's Don't Look Up. I'm telling you, Chris Evans was probably back for the holidays. He was probably watching the Boston News, which is just obsessed with this movie because half of Hollywood is here taping in Boston. And I'm sure Chris Evans was like, Adam McKay, I'm here. I'm in town. Just throw me a roll. Throw me a bone, guy. Uh, I love that he's, that he's doing this. I mean, he's obviously Netflix on, on the Gray Man. We actually had a great Gray Man piece come out of uh, CCXP and our Russo Brothers panel. So go to Collider and check out uh, the Gray Man piece um, that I wrote up. But uh, to, to think that that cast of Don't Look Up got even bigger with the addition of Chris Evans, my God. 
I, w- I wonder how much, like, is everybody taking a pay cut? Because I don't even know if Netflix can afford all these star salaries. It's ridiculous. Um, this was exciting news. Steven Soderbergh coming on to produce the Oscars with Stacey Sher, who I adore, and Jesse Collins. Stacey Sher, really, really lovely uh, woman with great taste. Great, great taste. I have a lot of respect for Stacey Sher. Jesse Collins, not super familiar with him, but obviously the the draw in this headline is uh, Soderbergh. Like this is a guy who gets, he just gets it. He gets what's next. He gets how to use technology. He's at the the cutting edge at the forefront of just a lot of things. And the guy's not afraid to experiment. And, And I actually don't think you could ask for a better Oscar producer for this particular year than Steven Soderbergh, um, particularly, you know, aided by, by Stacy and, and Jesse. Um, yeah, I can't, I can't wait to see what he does with this. Again, I, I don't think that we need this ceremony, but if he can inject some levity into it and, and say, listen, we've all had a really tough year, no matter what side of the political spectrum you're on, uh, you know, COVID was like the great equalizer. And if he could speak to that, this moment, that we're having in Hollywood and in the world, I, I, I think that maybe this year's Oscars, however unnecessary I feel they might have been, they, they could also be something very special in, in his hands. Uh, and now we wait four or five more months until like April for the Oscars. My God. Um, and I love how like what were the what were the extra two months of eligibility? Has anybody taken advantage of this? Has any major Oscar contender? I mean, I know we're getting a lot of limited releases in February. I just, you know, a lot like Sony Classics is doing that for like The Father and French Exit. So I guess there will be a lot of those Christmas corridor releases, except they're just coming in February now. Still waiting to see what happens with Judas and the Black Messiah. Uh, You know, Sony Classics pulled nine days from uh, from this season. It's going to release nine days next summer. And... I, yeah, again, I just don't understand. Like, isn't this the year to go for it? The way the race is wide open. Nomadland, which is the front runner, who has seen this movie? Like, what is the deal? It's out in select theaters, but when is it going to be on VOD? When can I see it? Uh, all right, movie news: Oscar Isaac starring in a Metal Gear Solid movie. People were the internet was just rejoiced within this news. They just basked in it. Uh, you guys know I'm a huge Oscar Isaac fan. Never played Metal Gear Solid. And I got to say, I just I don't understand this move for him. Like, I, I get that it is a big IP and people are like, oh, Solid Snake. Like, but this just feels like another need for speed type of unnecessary video game movie. And it's just not... If I was on Oscar's team, I just, I don't know that I would be steering him to this kind of stuff. I mean, I get that like, how, like this and Moon Knight, like, I, I guess it may, maybe it's selfish of me that I just want him doing more like scenes from a marriage and um, the, uh, the card counter, the Paul Schrader movie. And I guess if he's still continuing to do the, those and balance that kind of serious work with these sort of more mainstream movies, then more power to the guy. Just, I think he's I think he's he's a guy who should have an Oscar by now. Oscar should have an Oscar. 
and I'm just not loving all the the more some of the more commercial choices that that he's been making. But you know, I I don't know much about Metal Gear Solid, so what do I know? Ben Affleck signing on to star in George Clooney's The Tender Bar. This is a coming-of-age uh, memoir, an adaptation of it. It's about a kid who sort of uh, grew up without really a, a father figure, and so he went looking for them in his uncle's Long Island bar. I'm pretty sure Ben Affleck is going to be playing the uncle. I thought George Clooney might be playing the uncle, but I think he's just going to stay behind the camera, and if, if he does show up, it'll be in a small role. Maybe he'll be you know, the boy's absentee dad or something, even though that doesn't really strike me as a Clooney move. Um, Kroll, my, my pal, uh, you know, a lot, of, a lot of the story was about how Affleck and Clooney hadn't worked together uh, and this will be their first time. I mean, they have worked together. They produced Argo together and won an Oscar together. They, they shared that Oscar, but I know what Justin was getting at. This is like the first time as an actor and a filmmaker, they will be working together. Um, yeah, it, 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 I think it sounds like an interesting project. It's something different, particularly different than than Clooney's The Midnight Sky, which I still have not seen. Uh, I've heard mixed things about it, I would say. Mixed positive. But, uh, and that's encouraging, because I, I don't think that much of, of Clooney as a director, besides Good Night and Good Luck, I, I think he's made some some pretty bad movies over the years, whether it's Monuments Men, Suburbicon, Leatherheads. You know, I, I don't think Clooney is, is the greatest director, but, you know, with, with Affleck, it's like having another uh, director on set. So, I, again, I think a lot of this is going to rest on the, the shoulders of whoever they get to play young J.R. Moringer. But that is definitely a project at Amazon that I'm keeping a close eye on. Uh, and speaking of Ben Affleck, uh, news came out this week that his Batman movie, which, you know, he did not end up doing, would have followed Deathstroke hunting down Bruce Wayne's family for revenge that came, uh, that came from the mouth of Joe Manganiello. Um, sure, Joe. Yeah. I mean, it sounds dark and fucked up, and that's what I want to see in a Batman movie. But at the same time, you know, in, in coming out of Joe's mouth, it just made it seem very Deathstroke-centric. Like, it was almost like a Deathstroke movie. Like, I don't, I don't know if that was necessarily the, the case there. Uh, but we don't have to worry about it because it's, it's not happening. Matthew Vaughn and his company Marv Films announced that they may be making seven more Kingsman movies. Holy shit. This is something that nobody asked for. Uh, I'm actually really looking forward to The King's Man, which is not considered The Kingsman like, 3. It's not considered the third film. But it is set in that world, so I guess it's like a, a spinoff of sorts. I think it looks really cool, but Kingsman 2 was not good. You know, I, I, I did like the first Kingsman quite a bit. The second one I thought was bad. And so if you give me more Kingsman movies, they better be closer to the first than the second. Because, you, yeah, that, that was just like a, an obnoxious kind of mess. The golden, the golden circle. Um, Seven more Kingsman movies, man. I mean, I know Taron Egerton's good and all, but seven more movies. I don't know. I just don't understand like the the idea of even announcing something like that. People aren't. Some people are excited about sequels, but like I, we're excited about them one or two at a time. Like when we say, "Oh, we're going to be shooting the Matrix sequels back to back." Once you get, we're going to be doing three, four, five more sequels, let alone seven. You're entering sort of 
avatar territory uh, where people, I think it's like more of a punchline than something that people are actually looking forward to. The Hawkeye series on Disney Plus added Florence Pugh and Vera Farmiga. Florence Pugh going to be reprising her role from Black Widow, it sounds like. I mean, she's obviously, you know, one of the most in-demand actresses, it seems like, at the moment. So good for, for Hawkeye for, for getting her. And um, I'm sure that was part of the appeal of taking that job in, in Black Widow to begin with. I think that they had announced a Hawkeye show by then. I'm not quite sure, again, what the timeline was. But <sighs> I think what you're seeing now is Marvel offering uh, talent the chance to straddle both film and television. So they know that the work won't dry up. And some of these actors are reluctant to sign on to these parts because they're worried the work won't dry up, dry up and they'll just be make, stuck making these movies for five, six years. Um, but obviously Hawkeye is going to mainly be about, you know, Jeremy Renner's Clint Barton and, and uh, Haley Seinfeld's Kate Bishop. Um, so, you know, I don't know how gigantic a role Florence Pugh will ultimately have. Uh, and everybody's loving this show just because like the golden retriever I don't know if it's a Labrador or a Golden Retriever, but they love the, the cute puppy dog that Haley Steinfeld has. That's, that's all you got to do to get people on your side these days is just throw an adorable dog in there. Uh, Taraji P. Henson signing on to make her directorial debut with Two-Faced, which I thought was interesting. It's about a, a, a young black high school student who um, basically digs up some dirt on her school principal, confronts him with his racist past, and then he, in uh, you know, gets tries to get revenge by sort of screwing up her collegiate career, and so she tries to to take him down with the help of some friends. Taraji P. Henson will play the girl's mother. Uh, I'm all for it. I'm all you know. Taraji, she has spent a lot of time in the trenches in this industry. She's been around a long time. She's earned this opportunity. If she feels like she's ready to step up behind the camera, I'm glad that Braun is giving her a shot. Now, there was another uh, story that broke just around the same time about Ashton Sanders adapting this book, A More Unbending Battle. And when I, my first reaction to it was like, oh, God, now, you know, Ashton Sanders taking away jobs from a writer, you know, just because he's a celebrity, you know, he's, he's this young actor and some company hired him to adapt this, this book because he's famous or whatever. That's actually not at all what happened. Uh, so Ashton Sanders you know, a, a very talented young actor, up and coming still. He actually op optioned this book himself. And that's the kind of moxie you got to admire. This is a book about the Harlem Hellfighters. Uh, you know, maybe he's frustrated with some of the, the parts that have been coming his way or haven't been coming his way. And so he's like, listen, I, I, I like this book. I'm going to use my own money that I've made acting to option it for myself. I'm going to adapt it myself and I'm going to star in it. That's awesome. I mean, I wish him luck in, in getting it uh, set up and, and financed and everything. But, I, you know, I, I do think that as a young actor, if you're not getting the parts that you want, you've got to create those parts for yourself. So I, I, I uh, admire his ambition. Uh, Benjamin Walker signing on to join the cast of Lord of the Rings. I, you know, they added like 20 people. I don't know if we talked about this last week. Ben Walker was a guy. So, you know, he has the same manager as and he's my buddy, uh, Jason Spire. He represents Anthony Mackie, Oscar Isaac, and Ben Walker. And Ben Walker, I remember, was sort of being positioned as like the, the third leg in this sort of great trio. And then it never quite happened for him between Abraham Lincoln, Vampire Hunter, and uh, 
uh, in the heart of the sea didn't really do that well. And then he was supposed to do this HBO show, the missionary that never happened. Um, but he, you know, he's considered like a great or, or really like talented theater actor. Um, and so maybe this is the part that sort of makes Ben, I don't know how big the part is in Lord of the Rings. So maybe this is the part that, that makes Ben Walker household name. Um, because I, I do think that he has something and just hasn't had the right vehicle to necessarily show it. Uh, and also, and Maxim Baldry was finally confirmed in that announcement. I announced his casting back in October 2019. Boy, Amazon was pissed at me at the time, but it sounds like the guy booked it. Um, Daisy Ridley signing on to The Young Woman and the Sea. If I tell you guys, I couldn't believe that this project like it hadn't been reported because it's been around for years, like at least three years, Daisy Ridley has been attached to this. I promise you. I, like, I remember asking Paramount about it, and, and I guess they never did confirm it, and that's because they were never planning to make it. By the way, all these movies that are announced these days, or you're seeing a lot of development deals, a lot of first-time filmmakers and stuff like that. I don't know how many of these movies are actually going to get made, but uh, Young Woman C was one of those movies that Paramount was like, yeah, sure, we'll, we'll develop something, but they never announced it because there was no green light. Uh, you just couldn't pull the trigger on something like this. But Disney Plus, this is their, their the star of their Star Wars movies. They want to keep her in house. They got uh, Joe Kim Ronning, who, who did, um, what am I blanking? One of the Pirates of the Caribbean movies, Dead Men Tell No Tales. I didn't see any of the sequels because I didn't like the first one with Johnny Depp, which is the worst Oscar nomination potentially in history. But a uh, young woman in the sea, she's going to be playing a long-distance swimmer who swims 21 miles across the English Channel, battling wind and waves. And, uh, you know, she was the first woman to do so. So it is a, an inspiring story, an empowering story. Um, and I think that there's actually something there. That, that, that could be a good pick for da Daisy Ridley. This is the kind of, you know, like, Disney is known for its inspirational sports movies and... You know, there may not be any competition in this necessarily because you are just, you know, the competition is like your own endurance. There's no one swimming against her. She, it's not like a race, but, uh, you know, safety, I think, looks great on Disney+. Plus. And so I'd like to, I'm glad, I, I want to see Disney return to this genre. I'm glad that they're, they're they don't know how to, you know, when you're not doing a theatrical release, they don't have to be baseball, basketball, football movies either. You can do interesting stuff like a swimming movie. I'd like to see a proper volleyball movie. So hopefully uh, Disney actually, com you know, commits to making this one. I mean, it's got Jerry Bruckheimer behind it. So I, I think that that, that that ultimately will go in the spring as intended. They got to wait for the weather on that one. And, and uh, Ronning or whatever, I don't know how to pronounce his last name. Uh, did Contiki, so he has plenty of experience shooting on the water. I think he's actually a, a, a good, solid choice for that movie. Chris Pratt signing onto the Black Belt, this indie comedy where he's going to be playing like the, the wacky uncle to a kid who who wants to learn how to defend himself. He wants to become a karate expert. I think that's a good role for Chris Pratt. You know, he doesn't always need to be saving the world or the galaxy. You know, fighting space aliens or dinosaurs like. Just give me the, the Andy Dwyer that we all kind of loved in, on Parks and Recreation. Get back to that a little bit. And I think this is the first 
step. There's no director yet. Pratt is going to produce it. Kevin Hart and Wesley Snipes signing on to do the Netflix limited series, True Story. It's billed as an event series. I do wish that streamers would let the media decide what is an event and what is not, because I just want to know, like, what is the, the uh, is there a meeting to decide? Is this an event series for us? Is this an event? Is Kevin Hart doing a, a, his first dramatic TV show an event? Um, it's, he's not straying too far. He's going to be playing a, a world famous, successful comedian who's on tour in Philadelphia, his hometown. He has, you know, he goes out with his older brother and they get into some trouble and it threatens to like ruin his entire career. That sounds like really good to me. I, I like the idea of Kevin Hart and Wesley Snipes playing brothers. I, I like the idea of Wesley Snipes playing sort of the fuck up brother and, and Kevin Hart having to like clean up his mess. And, and, uh, and I think Stephen Williams is directing this. He did a, a bunch of Watchmen episodes. He's directing half this show for for Netflix. Uh, this is the kind of stuff I want to see. And and you know, Kevin Hart. It's it, it's good to see him mixing things up. Like he has that fatherhood dramedy. That's going to be a little bit different for for him. I never saw the upside. So like I, I don't I haven't seen much of Kevin Hart, the the dramatic actor. Um, but I, I I do think that it's in him. And I really like Kevin Hart's new uh, Netflix special, Zero Fucks Given. You should check that out. Um, if you're a fan of stand-up comedy. Uh, we broke a story this week about Apple's Dark Matter. This is a show from Blake Crouch and Matt Tolmack, the, the Venom and Morbius producer. Uh, it sounded interesting, you know, and, and Apple needs to to be a little bit more forthright, I think, with some of its development plans. Like, you know, it's quick to announce some of the the big flashy titles, but, you know, those are kind of few and far between um this is an interesting show the kind of show that like a almost like a not that this is like an alternative history show but although in some ways i suppose it is since it explores the the idea of choice but like a man in the high castle type of show which doesn't have the same profile as some of the other amazon shows or you know those early amazon shows but it developed a, a solid little fan base there and and helped get this fledgling service going uh, I, I think Apple could use more shows like that, less um, event series, if you will, less less tent poles, just the bread and butter stuff. Uh, Jeremy Irons signed on to replace Robert De Niro in Ridley Scott's Gucci. He's going to be playing the father of, uh, I believe it's Adam Driver's character. Yeah. Um, interesting that De Niro had to drop out. I was kind of excited to see him working with Ridley Scott, working with Pacino again. Um, so yeah, part of me wonders why he dropped out. I hope it has nothing to do uh, with his health or anything like that. I know, you know, all these guys are getting up there now and, and it, it unfortunately has to be a concern. Uh, Matt Reeves, a bunch of like genre stuff this week. And I don't need to get into the projects other than to say, you know, I look forward to all of them. Matt Reeves is doing something called Switchboard. Radio Silence is doing Reunion. And Chad Stahelski doing Lush for Lionsgate. Those are all interesting genre projects uh, to read up on and and keep an eye on. Uh, Ira Madison III, my guy, my dude. Uh, the Keep It host, he is going to be writing a New Line movie that will find Jennifer Hudson singing a bunch of Christmas songs. People like Jennifer Hudson. People like her when she's singing. People like Christmas songs. Sure, it all makes sense. I'm sure this will find its way to HBO Max uh, in time for, for next Christmas or whatever. Um, but happy for, for Ira that he that he booked that gig. Um, 
Man, the Invincible animated series added a bunch of names to it this week, including two-time Oscar winner Mahershala Ali, John Hamm, Ezra Miller, Nicole Byer. Like this, this series has one of the greatest voice casts ever assembled. Stephen Yen and J.K. Simmons are doing the, the leads, but it has like it's, it's just astounding the talent that is in this show, and I am looking forward to it. This is like an animated The Boys um, from Robert Kirkman, though the creator of The Walking Dead. I don't know if it'll be as as violent and, and fuck up and crazy as the boys. But, you know, sometimes that, sometimes the tone of the boys can be a little bit alienating, at least, you know, for, for, particularly for some uh, viewers who, who may not be accustomed to that level of, of violence and insanity. Uh, so maybe Invincible will be the thing that wins them over. I don't watch a lot of animation, but this is a show that I definitely plan on checking out. It's an hour long. You don't see a lot of, hour-long animated shows so, so the the length has me a little worried but uh i don't know with a voice cast like this i, I feel like skybound they, they know what they're doing um we saw the return of fyc this week we taped a new installment in for your consideration hop over to collider watch that whether you know it's there or on youtube um i you know, chat with scott mance and perry nemeroff about mank about sound of metal all kinds of fun stuff uh, I also sat and watched on Saturday, or, sorry, wait, it was Sunday. I watched a six-hour live stream from CCXP. What a failure. Just a, a terrible event, a terrible broadcast. Almost no news came out of it. Uh, I get that, you know, you got to have the, these fan conventions in different parts of the world, and there's only so much news and reveals to do. Um, but yeah, it was a six hour Facebook live stream, primarily in Portuguese because CCXP is in Brazil. I hope I never get that assignment again because it was brutal. Um, I, I, you know what I thought was interesting? Just like the talk about Mank being about, you know, the battle for who wrote Citizen Kane and, and credited versus uncredited writers. Doesn't Mank have two uncredited writers on its own? Eric Roth. I think is a producer on the film or an exec producer. He had a hand in writing it. Andrew Kevin Walker, who, who wrote Scream and has probably had a hand in, in, in uncredited uh, writing a whole bunch of Fincher movies. I think he worked on it. Like if, if I could have interviewed Fincher, that's what I would ask him about. Like when you, when you're talking about credit and, and all that kind of stuff, well, what does he have to say about Eric Roth and Andrew Kevin Walker not getting credit on, on this movie? Uh, Howard Stern re-upping for five more years on Sirius XM. I don't have Sirius. I, I kind of miss Howard. Um, yeah, I, I grew up listening to Howard Stern. Like if I could, I would listen to Stern every day, but yeah, I can't, I can't get wrapped up in the, in the Sirius XM of it all. Uh, I wonder, I wonder why, like, I wonder if it's just like the, the, the crazy state of the world these days, Howard's like, you know what? I, I can't leave this job right now. Like it's stability. They're giving him the money he wants. They let him do whatever he wants. Like why go and mix that up? Um, but like, if I was one of these streaming services, I, I like try to get Howard Stern. Why isn't Netflix paying, paying Howard Stern? And you know, you have the Howard Stern show and it's archives on Netflix. And, and every morning everyone just puts on Netflix to, to watch the Stern show. Like, yeah, like one of these streamers should be jumping, jumping at Stern. Disney doing a reboot of Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day, tapping Matt Lopez to write it. It's going to be a 
uh, a, a Latinx version of it, just like Matt, uh, Matt Lopez is doing that with, um, with Father of the Bride. So he's sort of the guy to come in and, and uh, you know, I guess do a Latin remake of, of your movie. Um, Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad. I didn't even see that movie. I, I loved the book as a kid. It just, it skewed a little young for me. And I also didn't hear the greatest things about the movie. Um, but you know what? Again, for Disney Plus, it's like they, they need stuff like this. They, they, they do need it. And they need more diversity as, as well. Um, Imogen Poots and Tom Pelfrey joining Josh Brolin in Outer Range. That's an Amazon show to keep a close eye on. And then Tom Pelfrey also starring in this indie movie, American Murderer, uh, he, which also added, who is it? I think Ryan Phillippe, Idina Menzel, Jackie Weaver, Paul Schneider, Kevin Gor- Corrigan, Moises Arias. That's an interesting little uh, ensemble for this indie movie in which Tom Pelfrey is going to be playing a, a charismatic con man turned party king who bankrolls his high living through a series of scams. I'm just paying attention to everything with Tom Pelfrey these days after his turns in Ozark and Mank. Apple uh, got its hands on Carrie and Me, which is a, uh, a, a movie that's going to be about Carol Burnett and her relationship with her daughter. <clears throat> uh, Lionsgate nabs Silk Road. This is one of the movies that is like, you know, in the can that I am most looking forward to because I read the, the uh, Nick Denton's, no, Nick Denton or Bilton? Nick Bilton, I want to say, sorry. Um, his book on the silk road <laughs> and it was awesome like it was one of the best books i've read during this pandemic nick robinson who i think is great in a teacher he plays the dread pirate roberts in this movie and jason clark i believe is uh, like the fbi guy chasing him really excited for silk road which i think is coming out in the next couple of months uh there's a true blood reboot in the works that i don't i don't really watch true blood i, I think i watched the half of the first season and couldn't really get into it um, I, I don't think it was announced with a title, so I just wanted to, to say that I've heard, and I don't, I don't know if this is like a joke title, uh, that the new that the new True Blood would be called New Blood. So I, I like part of me thinks that's clever, and part of like it's a way of, you know, sort of establishing that it is related to True Blood. Uh, but it also makes me think it's like a little too on the nose. So maybe that's why they didn't announce the title yet. Neil Blomkamp did a supernatural horror movie during the pandemic. I don't even, I don't think that there was much in the way of, excuse me. Uh, whenever I do this podcast, I don't know if it's just the talking nonstop or the taking in of the air, but I always get the hiccups. Um, where was I? Neil Blomkamp, right. Supernatural horror movie. Uh, did it under the radar. Not much in the way of a log line or cast. So we'll have to wait to see. You know, what comes of that? He, he's a guy who can never sit still, though. Like, I don't know why the studios have entirely turned their backs on him, or it seems like they have. You know, like, he was going to do that movie Inferno with Taylor Kitsch for, for uh, AGC, and, and that never got off the ground. Obviously, the pandemic, I'm sure, affected things. But um, I liked Chappie. So, yeah, sue me. Amanda uh, Seyfried. I think I called her Seafried on FYC just because that's how I'd always pronounce it. But it's Amanda Seyfried, I believe. I didn't know she turned down a role in Guardians of the Galaxy, that she was going to play uh, Zoe Saldana's character. That is kind of interesting. Did not know that. Wouldn't have guessed that. 
Uh, Scott Frank said that he's going to be making a, Spa- a Sam Spade series with Clive Owen. Uh, Scott Frank can do whatever he wants right now. He, he did the, the Queen's Gambit. So he's just like on top of the world. Now, here's the thing. Like, if you had told me anyone besides Scott Frank was doing a Sam Spade thing, and I think we also found out um, – oh, that's right. I, I don't think I added to the list. Someone's doing, like, a Buck Rogers TV show. Like, Sam Spade, Buck Rogers, these are, like, characters that, like, my grandfather would have been interested in. Uh, and I would say, what are you doing? What is the Sam Spade thing? Don't do this. No. Um, but – Clive Owen's cat, like Cass and Clive Owen as Sam Spade, that is actually kind of cool. And the fact that it's Scott Frank, whose plain clothes is a mystery that is one of my all time favorite guilty pleasure movies. Try to track down plain clothes if you're a big Scott Frank fan now after Queen's Gambit. I would say, yeah, if there's going to be another Sam Spade movie show, whatever, I, I like this package, Scott Frank and Clive Owen. So, sure, I'll, I'll look the other way on, on the uh, old timey character. Um, what else? I did a review of Your Honor for Collider this week, the new Brian Cranston Showtime show. It felt like a whole bunch of shows that we've seen before that was just put, that were just put in a blender, and then out came Your Honor. It so temper your expectations. It is very watchable. I found it to be compelling and, and entertaining and all that, but I it also felt very familiar. Uh, particularly a certain subplot between um, the son, Hunter Dewan, who I think is really good and kind of holds his own against Cranston. And then Sophia Black to Elia, who I also thought was great on the Mick. Um, but yeah, their, their subplot just, uh, I don't know. It seems like it's from another show. There's just too much going on. It's packing in too many tropes. They're, they're, they're throwing everything uh, in the kitchen sink in. I also interviewed my old boss, Luke Greenfield, whose Half Brothers opened on Friday. Uh, you know, Half Brothers, I, it, it was good. It, it could have been better. I, th- I told Luke this. Like, I think it could have been funnier, you know, particularly the way that they marketed it as a comedy. Like, it, for me, the strengths were not the, the hangover due date like hijinks. It was the emotional stuff. It was the bond between these two brothers and the scenes with their father. I thought Juan Pablo Espinosa is really good in this movie. Um, so, you know, as long as you're not going, going in, expecting some like raucous comedy, I think that this movie works. It all builds to this emotional climax that I won't spoil, but it's like, if that moment doesn't work, then the movie doesn't work, but the moment did work. So I think you have to give Luke credit for that. Um, you know, I, I, I was tough on him. This was a, he was very candid with me. Like I asked him questions that I don't think most journalists would have the balls to ask a director uh, you know, in this sort of situation, in this kind of context. And, uh, but, you know, to his credit, Luke, Luke really answered him. There was nothing he really felt uncomfortable talking about. Um, you know, cause a lot of people are like, this is a movie about Mexican characters set in Mexico. Like why did they hire this white guy director to, to make it? And he actually had a, an interesting response to that. Um, so I, I thank Luke for, for being candid with me, his, his former intern. I imagine that dynamic was, was maybe a little awkward, but I, I do think it's one of the more um, illuminating interviews that I think you'll read this month, given all the uh, you know, awards bullshit that you, that you have uh, coming down the pipeline from the mainstream media. Uh, good, by the way, kudos to Netflix for not giving into the, the people who want a, a fiction disclaimer on The Crown. That's ridiculous. Like if you don't 
I like that Netflix is like, you know what? Our audience is smart enough to realize this is a TV show. It's a scripted TV show. It's not a documentary. Not everything has to be 100% accurate and real. Um, so, yeah, I don't need a disclaimer for that. Um, Ellen DeGeneres testing positive for COVID-19. I haven't been on Twitter since this announcement hit. I'm sure Twitter's having a field day with it. A lot of people would say it's, it's karma for how she's treated people. I mean, you can say that if you want. I, I'm just, I'm not wishing COVID on anybody, you know, including Ellen DeGeneres, who's brought a lot of joy to people's lives and then done a lot of good things with, with charity. And um, yeah, like I wouldn't wish COVID-19 on, on my worst enemy. So I, I do uh, wish Ellen a, a quick recovery. Um, all right, let's just get into reviews, trailers, and mailbag and, and wrap this up. Uh, I was going to do a little preview of the Disney Investor Day, but you're going to get it all in a couple hours, and it's going to be all we're talking about for the next week anyway. So we will devote the majority of next week's show to all the great stuff that's going to be coming out of this. Uh, reviews. I saw Ma Rainey's Black Bottom last night. It was good. It was better than I thought it was going to be. And I know, you know, I, I thought maybe Chadwick Boseman's work was being overhyped because you know, he passed away. And so people are really kind of in the tank for him, but no, he does deliver. He is great in this movie. So is Viola Davis. I mean, the whole cast is good, but Chadwick and Viola, uh, they, they brought it, they brought, they brought the house. And yes, it does feel like a play. Um, you know, it's an adaptation of, of a play. Like, you know, it's tough, it's tough to strip away. It's theatrical origins, but I, I, I let's just say I did not see the end of this movie coming and it hit harder than I thought that it would. I saw Mulan finally caught up with that one. Good, you know, they, good job. I can't say it was a great movie, but I, I think it, it stuck the landing. Like it, it hit the target. Nikki Caro delivered exactly what they wanted. I thought that, you know, the largely Chinese cast was really good. You know, there were some fun action set pieces and a good message. So you know, nothing exceptional, I, I don't think, but a, a solid effort from Disney uh, all around. I saw Ava, which is how you pronounce that movie. This is a movie I never would have seen, never would have spent money on VOD to rent it. The reviews were not terribly kind, but uh, this is a Jessica Chastain, you know, uh, action spy assassin movie or whatever. Um, it was better than I thought. I put it in the guilty pleasures list. I, you know, it wasn't, wasn't great. But it had some fun action sequences as well. I mean, Jessica Chastain kind of doing her Jessica Chastain thing. Um, yeah, for, for a free movie on Netflix, Way to Kill 96 Minutes, I would suggest checking Ava out as long as you know what you're getting yourself into. Uh, I want to plug my Sound of Metal review uh, I did with JTE. So go over to JTE Movie Things, his YouTube channel. Check out his uh, review of Sound of Metal. I join him on the drums, no less. On the drums. You guys already know my thoughts. I've already said it's the best movie I've seen all year. I did watch it again this week um, with Dad. And yeah, he he liked it. He didn't love it. He thought, I think he thought it was a little slow for his taste. And I mean, I don't think it's slow. I actually think the movie was cut down nine or ten minutes from when I saw it uh, at AFI Fest last month. Um, I'm pretty sure that they did trim it. We also watched Promising Young Woman. I showed that to my family. Very divisive. The women liked it, the, the men not so much. One of my two brothers liked it, but yeah, dad dad hated it. Dad was like ready to shut it off a half an hour in. He's just, he just kept asking, what is this movie about? What's it about? I'm like, I can't really tell you what it's about because that gives it away. He's very impatient. 
and finally, I watched The Killing of Two Lovers, which was good, but I like the filmmaking I thought was great. I just wanted it to go in a different direction at the end than it ultimately goes. Um, not that I didn't like the ending, because I did like the ending. I just think it it sets up a different payoff. So I, I think that that movie could have been a little bit better. But at the same time, it was probably made on absolutely no budget. Uh, and, and the craftsmanship is, is there. And, and I thought Clayton Crawford was absolutely uh, great as, as the lead. Uh, Trailer-wise, we've got a lot of interesting trailers this week. Um, let's start with Nobody. That trailer blew me away today. Wow, it looks fucking awesome. This is Bob Odenkirk in a John Wick type of movie. Two guys bust into his home and he doesn't really do anything to defend his home or his family or himself. And eventually something snaps inside of him and he just becomes this absolute like lethal fucking badass. It look, he looks great in it. The mood, the action looks great. Like this is just like John wick with a little tongue in cheek, if you will. Um, I cannot wait for that movie. Hopefully uh, you know, it goes on VOD if, if theaters near me are not open by then. Cause this might even be a, a movie worth braving the theater for. Uh, American Skin. This is a, a Nate Parker movie. Ooh, Nate Parker. Mm. Um, obviously, you know, I don't know that I'm going to be hugging it out with Nate Parker uh, anytime soon. You, you, like people have their opinions of Nate Parker and those are valid opinions. I, I get it. Uh, I, I, however, I don't think that this guy should have been like stripped from his lively, uh, you know, ha- had his livelihood stripped from him and never allowed to work again. It's just, it's complicated. It's complicated. It's stuff like that when it's a, a he said, she said kind of case. I think you always have to give the benefit of the doubt to the, the victim, to the accuser, uh, who in this case, you know, killed herself. So, you know, clearly she was affected by this. Like something went down. We're never going to know what that was. But, you know, Nate Parker seems like a guy who's who, who maybe when the scandal first broke, handled things the wrong way. But since then, it has has learned a lot about himself, been apologetic. I think he's done the right thing. This movie, American Skin, I think it screened at Venice. Um, I was worried that it wasn't going to get a U.S. sale and that we kind of just never see it. But Vertical Entertainment picked it up. Uh, and it's about a, a, a black father whose son is shot by a white cop. And so he just does the unimaginable. He, he goes right down to the police station and takes the police station hostage. I mean, with, with the, you know, the help of some buddies. And I thought it looked super powerful. It looked awesome uh, in a different way than, than nobody. And you know, listen, I, I won't blame you if you can't separate the art from the artist. That's a choice that every individual has to make on their own. Um, and I chose not to see a rainy day in New York, the new Woody Allen movie, even though I think that is a complicated gray area as well. But, uh, you know, I, I am someone who's just like, if I want to see a movie, then, you know, whatever Nate Parker did, a lot of people worked on this movie, you know, it it wasn't just made by one person and I get, well, I don't want to be seen enriching Nate Parker. I don't think that Nate Parker is getting rich off this movie or this vertical entertainment distribution deal either. Um, if I want to see a movie, I want to, then I want to see the movie, whether Mel Gibson is, is in it or Emil Hirsch or Kevin Spacey, you know, like uh, if I want to watch seven again, I'm not going to feel bad at the usual suspects. I'm not going to sit there thinking about Kevin Spacey like that art. 
I, I think supersedes some of that stuff, even though, you know, some, someone's well-being is obviously more important than, than a movie. I just, I don't like art being suppressed. I, I have a real problem when someone says, well, we're not going to let you see this because of the person, you know, involved in making it. You know, the same thing goes to the Roman Polanski movie, uh, Jack Hughes, uh, which, which, you know, has not been available for, for U.S. audiences. Uh, and I've heard nothing but great things about that. Speaking of, the, I mean, this whole line, uh, it, we got a, a first teaser for Shadow in the Cloud, which was written by Max Landis, you know, who, who's a, a problematic figure to too many. I still follow Max on, on Instagram. Um, you know, we were never close or anything. I wouldn't even necessarily call him a, a friend, but I do see someone in Max who uh, has gone through a lot of therapy, you know, clearly ha has some demons that, that, that they need to face and have been facing. He's been doing the work from what I can tell from his uh, social media posts. And, uh, but again, leaving him out of it. It's like, this is a movie. It's a female empowerment tale starring Chloe Moretz fighting a gremlin. The movie was batshit insane. It's directed by a female filmmaker and Roseanne Liang. Like, should I not see this movie and just all the hard work that Chloe and Roseanne put into this movie? I shouldn't see it because Max Landis has a co-writing credit on it. I don't really understand that that line of thinking. I understand, you know, maybe a little bit more with Nate Parker and American Skin because he's the director and we afford the director authorship in these these movies. But yeah, I I, I just you know, I, again, it's your right to not see Shadow in the Cloud because Max Landis's name is on it and it may enrich him, you know, in in some way. But I thought Shadow in the Cloud was a, a hell of a midnight movie. I love the synth score. Just had a blast with it. So, you know, if, if you can separate the art from the art, just check it out. Uh, there was a trailer for The Marksman with Liam Neeson. Looks like every other Liam Neeson movie that's come out the last five years, except now he's paired with a, a little Mexican boy who he has to defend. Uh, we got the first trailer for Michelle Pfeiffer's French Exit, which definitely looked like a Sony Classics movie to me. Uh, and there wasn't that much with, like, the cat. Doesn't this movie have, like, a talking cat voiced by Tracy Letts? Like, I feel like that was not in the trailer. Maybe that would have been off-putting to the Sony Classics uh, older audience. We got a first look at History of Swear Words starring Nick Cage. Uh, that sounds like a really fun Netflix show. Netflix is good at, at sort of creating something out of nothing. Like swear words. People are interested in swear words and where they come from. Why don't we make a show about it? And let's get Nick Cage, who's this prolific swearer. People love hearing him swear. Uh, yeah, Netflix is just good at that kind of stuff. They, they just announced a, a Headspace series as well, based on like the meditation app to sort of rival HBO Max's calm. Like they, you can create a TV show out of anything these days. Uh, and they did, Clarice on CBS. Uh, they made a show out of The Silence of the Lambs. I don't know why you wouldn't just go watch Silence of the Lambs, which I'm sure will be 100 million times better than this show. But it does have the curiosity factor. I, I won't lie. You know, you do get glimpses of, of Buffalo Bill and, and you know, the, the whole butterfly theme in this little 30-second teaser. So even though it's a CBS show, I will probably check it out the same way that I checked out the Bone Collector show on, on NBC. Like, I don't my, – my hopes are not high for this, but uh, – you know, if you've got Hannibal Lecter and Buffalo Bill and Clarice Starling, all right, I'm going to give it a look. And then finally, The Vigil, which is a, a uh, genre movie um, from Keith Thomas, I believe is the name, I want to say. And uh, it's about like the Jewish ritual of, you know, someone has to stay, be with a body, you know, in the first 24 hours after passing or whatever. 
Uh, so this guy stands vigil and it sounds like his shit gets haunted big time. I've heard great things about that, that movie from my pal JD Lifshitz, who is one of its producers coincidentally. Uh, all right. Mailbag. Cause this show's already running long. I knew it would. I'm sorry, Thad. Will Drajula says, hi, Jeff. I was wondering if you've heard anything about potential release dates for some movies that look great, like Judas and the black Messiah and the French dispatch. Do you think they'll come out in time for this year's Oscars or are they going to hold them a year? Thanks as always. I don't know why you wouldn't release these movies because the awards race seems so wide open. Judas and the Black Messiah is a movie I would catapult to like front runner status. Uh, that's how good I thought it looked. Um, but I, I kind of felt like this whole awards season was, should have an asterisk on it as soon as the French dispatch got bumped. Uh, and it'll probably come out next summer unless we hear other, otherwise at the Disney investor day today. Um, Cause they could always put that on, on Disney plus, you know, that was made with the intention of a theatrical release. So it, it could qualify if they just put it on the streaming service, they could even put it, put it behind a, a paywall. I'm sure people would pay like, you know, I wasn't going to pay 30 bucks to see Mulan, but would I pay 30 bucks to see the French dispatch? Maybe, Maybe, you know, Judas and the Black Messiah winds up on, on HBO Max. I think that was one of the movies that was announced. It was just a matter of, you know, the timing and, and when that would hit. Uh, so I don't know. I, I have a feeling Judas and the Black Messiah could come out in time for this year's Oscars, but I, I think French Dispatch will ultimately come out in the, in the spring or summer. Uh, will also says, Jeff, I had a question regarding the big HBO Max situation. I saw one of my most anticipated movies from Warner Brothers next year. Elvis was not included in the press release or in the promotional video on YouTube, does this mean it's not going to do the HBO Max uh, style release uh, or that it's been pushed to 2022? Am I reading too much into it? Blah, 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 blah. Um, yeah, I, I just think like movies like Elvis and the Batman, those are probably 2022 titles. Um, and so, yeah, you don't, you, you don't need to make any decisions about that just yet. Maybe people will be ready to return to theaters by mid-next summer. And, and Warner, some of these movies that were earmarked for HBO Max will just go theatrical like Dune. You know, maybe by next October, you know, everything's looking hunky-dory and people are ready to, to sit in a theater again. I don't know. Um, and the point is, neither does anybody at Warner Brothers. Uh, do you think the movie directors, actors, and actresses' reaction to, to WB putting their entire movie slate on HBO Max will make Disney hesitant to go all in with putting their movies on Disney Plus and skipping theatrical releases? Uh, no, I think it's just about the way that they went about it. You know, like like it was reported, Warner Brothers didn't really give anybody a heads up, and that, from my experience, like as a reporter they don't care if you write a negative story, like you're going to write what you're going to write. They just want to know what's coming. They don't want to be taken by surprise. And so as long as Disney notifies its partners, whether that's theaters, co-financiers, filmmakers, actors, as long as they know what's coming, I don't think that there will be, that they will be upset. Warner brothers, on the other hand, the way that they've treated people, they may end up losing Christopher Nolan. Christopher Nolan may throw up his hands and say, you know what? I'm done making movies for Warner Brothers. Alan Horn, who I had a great relationship while he was running Warners, I'm going to come make movies for Disney. And maybe that's how you get Disney into, uh, or Nolan involved in the MCU or Star Wars or whatever it is. Maybe you see Disney pony up for Bond and they just shout out a billion dollars for the Bond rights and, you know, they, they stick Chris Nolan on that. Who I, I don't know, but I, I do worry about Chris Nolan's future with Warner Brothers, unless some major changes are made to the executive leadership there. Uh, Alex Behunin, can you explain the difference between an actor's, artist, publicist, agent, and manager? Also, what is the order of importance? 
Uh, I think it all depends on, on who the actor is. Some actors are really close with their managers and, and it was their manager who discovered them. Um, and others, you know, are like, uh, I have an agent. Maybe I should just get a manager to, to sort of steer my career. Because an agent's job is to really, you know, maybe identify material and, and make the deal to negotiate the deal along with like a lawyer. A manager, you're, you're more trying to like build a career you're also more like responsible for like the day-to-day stuff you know if a client has something going on uh i I think the manager would be a little bit more hands-on the publicist's job is just to like get the client on talk shows and and magazine covers and and to deal with the occasional you know interview requests and stuff like that um so it, it all depends i mean you know for some people like a major major star like brad pitt the publicist may be the most important you know, because there's just so much media. Um, but for the average actor, I, I would imagine that the agent is the, the most important um, person in their lives. Although, again, unless it's a manager. Some, you know, these days you're seeing agents become managers. So people are even questioning the need for an agent. Like, why am I giving away 10% to the agent, 10% to the manager, 10% to the lawyer, uh, plus a, pub- a monthly publicist fee? Like, it, it adds up. You know, everyone's got their hands out and they know how much money these actors make. And so they don't make it cheap on. Uh, And then finally, we're going to end the show with this massive mailbag question. I'm going to try actually read the whole, I don't know if I'm going to read the whole thing. Basically it's from Peter Mills. And he asked about the Johnny Depp story in the Hollywood reporter, very unflattering story says his career is basically fucked with the studios, not offering him uh, jobs. Uh, and Johnny Depp's made some some bad choices. His la- the last two Pirates movies, he felt like he was phoning it in. Um, yeah, the article was bad. <laughs> the article was definitely not good. And, and that text message to the CA agent where he's really just saying all this nasty, horrible shit about Amber Heard. I mean, I've had like bad breakups in my day. I, I never talked about someone who I cared about or let alone loved. Uh, I've never talked about them like that. Um, so it shows that he has a real nasty streak, which I imagine is perpetuated by drug and alcohol abuse. Uh, I did not know that Sam Sarkar, who's the CEO of his production company, used to be his earpiece guy, his sound technician. Um, you know, do I think that Johnny Depp is a phony because he has an earpiece and he doesn't memorize his lines? No, I, I actually think that, you know, a lot of veteran actors probably do that, particularly someone whose memory is probably shocked to shit. I mean, De Niro, you know, needs the fucking cue cards on SNL and everything. Like, you know, yes, an actor should memorize their lines because then it just feels like second nature. And I think it enhances their performance when they just know what they need to say inside and out. But at the same time, if you have the the lines coming in real time and you can interpret that uh, and, and, you know, make quick decisions on the fly, I mean, I'm sure you're familiar with the dialogue. Maybe you just haven't memorized it. I don't know that it necessarily matters whether you have an earpiece or, or not. Um, but, okay, do I think that he's going to wind up like a Bruce Willis, Nick Cage, like doing that kind of stuff? I, I, I do. I think that Johnny Depp, they just don't care overseas that much uh, about this kind of behavior. Uh, unfortunately, I think, you know, domestic violence is kind of a little bit more accepted uh overseas um and uh so yeah i I don't think that you know johnny has his defenders here in in america but 
I feel like he'll, he, he will primarily be making movies for international audiences. He will be doing those sort of Emmett furlough. We're shooting down in Baton Rouge or millennium. We're shooting in Romania uh, movies where it's like Johnny Depp's the star, but he's only in it for a half an hour and he's paired with some young guy, the way a lot of these Bruce Willis, Nick Cage movies are where they just kind of come in. They, they worked one, two, three days on set and they built a movie around that. Um, and yeah, you know, Nick Cage and Bruce Willis are, are not in the same boat as Johnny Depp. Johnny Depp also has weird tastes. Like he's not a, a, a an action star the way Bruce Willis and Nick Cage necessarily were. He does a lot of weird, quirky indies. Um, and yeah, I, I do have a feeling he'll, he will be stuck doing those uh, for a long time. And he should basically consider himself lucky that he still can do those because, yeah, studios are, think this guy is toxic. I don't see him doing a Netflix show or anything, uh, you know, like, like that. Sorry. That'll do it. We're already running long. I'm sorry, Thad. Thank you for everybody for watching the Snyder Cut. I'll be back next week with a ton of news from this Disney Investor Day. Until then, stay safe, folks. Wear a mask.